0: Hello, and welcome, friends, to another edition of Sustainability Now with me, Justin Mogg, here on your community radio station. We are Forward Radio, WFMP Louisville, broadcasting from here in the historic Habern Building at 106.5 FM. And we also live stream to the world at forwardradio.org. Hey, if you're listening there now, why don't you click on Donate while you're there and help keep us on the air. We are entirely listener supported, and it's affordable if the community comes together to support it at just 20 dollars a day with all this volunteer power Speaking of which, you could be one of those volunteers. We'd love to get your voice behind these microphones or your skills and talents behind the scenes, helping keep this great community resource going. So click participate while you're over at forwardradio.org. Well, what we do on sustainability now each week is bring in folks from around the community who are diving deep into different pieces of the sustainability puzzle. And I'm really excited today to talk about environmental racism and issues of racism and public health today with my guest trinidad jackson welcome trinidad
1: yo what's up justin marg dr justin marg right.
0: you two are working on your phd i know that long struggle man a couple of more months a couple of more months yeah, yeah yeah, i've been there uh, but you already have your master's in public health and a master's of science what's that in
1: uh, clinical psychology in clinical psychology yeah Excellent. so i spent a little time as a clinician as well before i in the formal public health right mental health health, yes mental health care is part of the public health system but you know the formal practice of public health came after that okay clinical site yep
0: And now you're at UofL School of Public Health and Information Sciences, serving as Assistant Dean for Culture and Liberation, as well as a faculty instructor in Health Promotion and Behavioral Sciences. Now, I don't know how many schools have an Assistant Dean for Culture and Liberation, but tell me a little bit about that position.
1: Hey, we're the first. (laughs) (laughs) All right, there you go. So a couple of things, you know, a couple of factors that played into that. It is an inaugural position. Okay. Uh, it manifested in April of this year, so yeah. 2021. Essentially, right, if you are in Louisville, Kentucky, if you are in the United States, if you are in, you know, a part of the world that consumes popular media, social media, etc., right, you were aware of many of the racial injustice uprisings that have occurred across the United States, right, as they relate to, uh, in particular, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, but there were others. Uh, If we're keeping it uh, within a time context of 2020, we can even, you know, go back to that critical level of heightenedness that was around Ahmaud Arbery prior to everything else that came uh, thereafter. So, again, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So all of that went on, right? All of it was projected through media outlets. We... Couldn't escape it for people like myself. I'm black. I'm a man. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. And so, you know, right. That rings a bell. That is the (laughs) Ferguson uprising. (laughs) And that was sort of the catalyst to the 21st century, you know, racial uprisings. Were you uh, there at that time? Yeah. So I wasn't there when he was murdered. Uh, I went back. In November after the no indictment decision was rendered oh, yeah. for Darren Wilson, uh, the, yeah. the white officer who murdered him. And so thereafter, that was sort of the second wave of the uprising. And so I went back in November, December, January and engaged in you know, standing with my community in solidarity and disruption, but also I'm a researcher, right? So I went there to capture narratives that in- involved a spectrums of justice, safety, hope, and racial equity. And while I'm not necessarily here to talk about that, uh, <laughs> I actually brought that content back to the city, right? I was working and still work for the Office of Public Health Practice for U L School of Public Health. And during that time, so in 2014, it was a new office. It was recently erected. So in June 2014 is when that office became about. And I was hired in October of 2014. So that's when I first began my tenure as an employee at the School of Public Health right so hired in october second round of the Ferguson not rising happens in november <laughs> less than 30 days of me being on the clock right and so yeah. i go in and tell my white woman boss who had just recently relocated from rural part of texas come in and tell her yo you see what's going on in st louis and she's like oh my god you know yes is your family okay and all that I'm like, yeah, you know, my family's cool. Uh, you know, my mom, my mom's a war veteran. So she, wow. you know, she, when I am on the phone talking to her, mind you, I'm seeing everything right play out on TV, but I'm on the phone with her as well. Yeah. And she's like, yeah, you know, it feels like a war zone. Like, oh. I feel like I'm in uh, Saudi Arabia. Ow. So I'm like, all right, bet. I'm hopping on the plane. <laughs> I will be there, right? And so to go tell you know my quote-unquote boss or my leader that you know i'm hopping out here you know what i'm saying front lines and so we see that people are being arrested and discriminately we see the level of state violence that is occurring uh you know and so if that's going to have any impact on me as an employee of this institution we need to have a conversation now because the fact is i'm gone right and she sort of standing like a deer in the headlight silent i'm like yo like this this ain't hypothetical you know what i'm saying this ain't rhetorical i need an answer you know so she's like hell yeah dude like i got your bail money if you get arrested um but what the hell are you gonna do and so i told her what i just told you right well i'm going standing in solidarity engaging in disruption but i'm also a researcher. And so, you know, what are the streets yelling? And even prior to me going, Louisville stood in, right? Cities across the country stood in solidarity with mm-hmm. St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And so that touched my heart when I was able to go out into the streets of Louisville to protest before I even got to St. Louis, right? And so what were we yelling? We were yelling, no justice, no peace, right? And so that's where the justice aspect of the research came from. Uh, additionally, you know, when, when this is an issue of, you know, we can't walk down the street by being black we can't wear a hoodie we can't you know carry a bottle of tea and some skittles you know what i'm saying consistently being your existence consistently being policed it's an issue of safety for black people and so that's how that element factored into the research with justice safety hope and racial equity so hope you know she her name is uh dr monica wendell she was particularly interested in hope right so all of the things the generational trauma and violence that we have faced you know since we've been you know displaced to this country what in the hell keeps black people going in the face of all of this you know cultural and structural violence so yeah brought that content back here and facilitated some you know community listening sessions um at the request really of a couple of key community partners and community-based organizations So we engage community members who either lived, worked in, attended school, right? Engage some aspect of their life in the West End. They attended these sessions. I used the imagery that was captured by people in St. Louis to catalyze the conversation here in Louisville. So essentially in St. Louis, one of the things that I utilized was photo voice methodology, right? And so- an aspect of that, aspects of, of that methodology include imagery captured by the participant, as well as narrative, right, that supplements uh, what that picture represents. And so, brought that content back here, projected it, used it, used it to catalyze the conversations. And essentially, people who lived here in Louisville they responded to critical questions such as, you know, uh, what does this represent to you? What happened in St. Louis, right? Yeah. What does it represent to you? How does what happened there impact your life in Louisville? But then additionally, have you engaged in experiences or seen anything like this here in Louisville? And so people were able to, you know, to respond to those prompts. What does this mean for you? What does this mean for your family, etc.? Thereafter, we facilitated or cultivated space and opportunity for Louisville residents to create their own photo voice project. Oh, right. Nice. So I used aspects of the method in St. Louis to capture the content brought it back here, right? And so that wasn't a photo voice project in its entirety. That was more so using photo elicitation to capture a narrative and rich qualitative data from the community. But once we were here and we captured so much content that from a research and evidence-based perspective didn't really exist in the city, Mm. uh, it made sense for us to, you know, again, create that space for the community to create their own narratives around those themes, justice, safety, hope, and racial equity. So, I uh, created the Photo Voice project. It was community led, you know. So again, they captured uh, imagery and created narratives around their experiences related to, to those themes. We actually partnered with the Kentucky Center for African American Heritage. Nice. They hosted the exhibit. It was initially supposed to be on display for two months. Due to community demand, it was up for two years. Wow! Right? So conferences would come to the city, and they would, you know, see it on. KCWAH's website, or hear about it somewhere, and say, "Hey, like we want to be able to, you know, go through this exhibit and, and utilize it, you know, for nice. some aspect of our conference." Or, you know, I was doing uh, photo voice methods lectures for different, you know, professors at the university. So we would go to the space and I would lecture on photo voice's method, but also write the research and, and huh. the data. So yeah, it was used for multiple activities and initiatives. And so it ended up living for two years. Wow. And that was
0: through like 2016.
1: Wow. okay. So 2015, so uprising happened in 2014. 2015 is when I returned and began recruiting and engaging community members. Uh, in the community listening sessions and then thereafter we recruited and engaged community members through 2015 and 2016 in the photo voice project and okay. so it, it launched in the fall of 2016 wow yep. wow excellent all right live through 2018 in the <laughs> physical space uh and also you can actually view it online oh, at nice. uh, live Strive, succeed.com. live strive
0: succeed.com. Yep, okay, yep. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Cool. Um, so this leads up to the inaugural position of assistant dean for culture and liberation.
1: Yes, so bringing us back to 2020 and 2021, right? So, again, talking about how when we have something as visible as an uprising that catalyzes you know critical awareness critical reflection and critical action, not just in, you know, the respective cities, but across the world, right? Things got, some got to jump, some got to <laughs> shake, some got to move. And so we saw in Louisville, you know, from, even from a legislative perspective, right? Like Katura Heron, she was one of the primary catalysts for getting Brianna's law passed here locally, right. uh, Louisville Metro, uh, right? So a number of different institutions, agencies, organizations have said, hey, like, we got to do something, you know what I'm saying? We got to <laughs> respond to racism, and so one of the things that happened at U of uh, was President Neely Bendapudi. Uh, she made, you know, pretty bold declaration uh, that said she wants to, you know, cultivate a space wherein University of Louisville is the premier anti-racist institution in the region. Yeah. Right. And so, with that declaration came the charge for different schools, departments, units across the university to uh, either establish or reorganize, you know, resources, capacities, et cetera, in such a way that creates space to formally uh, engage in, you know, we can generally for now call it DEI, right? Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Initiatives. And so at the School of Public Health, our response was to create a dean position. And so that's how that came about. So, you know, people nominated people for for the position. And so persons were interviewed. And so I engaged in that process and was selected as the candidate for the position. And so upon accepting the position, well, I even mentioned it in my interview, but definitely upon accepting (laughs) the position when I got the call for the dean, you know, my number one priority was to do exactly that, to change the name, because if we are Consistently leading with the status quo, right? And we know from an institutional perspective, or even from a, if you want to call it the, I've heard recently the the DEI industrial complex, yeah, right? That's right. <laughs> it is feeling saying? like yeah. that. Yeah, uh, You know, you got certificate <laughs> programs, you know, coming out the wazoo now. But <laughs> if we're leading with that language, and that has been the baseline as well as the impetus that drives the culture that we are attempting right. to shift within institutions that's insufficient then to me right yeah i hear you and so when i go into spaces right because i've been engaged in in research and practice as it relates to violence prevention uh, and community for the formally for the past 5 or 6 years and so even our paradigm and, and our philosophical approach has been different. We've been challenging institutions such as the Centers for Disease Control to say, hey, we, we can't live within this narrow-minded yeah. view of what violence is within communities and, and, and furthermore, how we address it yeah. because it lives at the lower levels of ecology, at the individual and at the interpersonal levels. And so for me, if, I, if one of my primary goals is to shift the way that we view violence, uh, which then shifts the way that we respond to it, that we intervene. Right. Absolutely. Uh, and ultimately the outcomes that we see related to peace language has to shape that in a way that leads the charge. Right. And so number one on the docket for me is white supremacy. Yeah. Right. And it's just not for me. It's, it's number one. And <laughs> a lot of people's psyches, but the way that right, we are indoctrinated into oppressive and subordinate spaces, tells us that that is an elephant, right? And it's like, ah, uh, nah, <laughs> elephants don't exist in my world. <laughs> we we, we, we got to, you know what I'm saying? We got to we gotta address the issues head on. We have to name issues in order to address them. And so for me, it's critical as the person who's been selected for this leadership position to be able to go into space, predominantly white spaces, yes. yep. and lead with the conversation as it relates to culture, Right. When I go in and say, hey, we're here, we're creating a cultural agenda, right? White supremacy is a culture. It's a culture, absolutely. Violence is a culture, right? Yes. And so that allows me to lead with that conversation without people saying, what the hell is he talking about, I right? Got you. yeah. Versus if I'm coming in and I'm talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, right. where you can— and somewhat <laughs> shucking job around, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Diversity, oh, how many we different types of people do we have at the table? <laughs> yeah. Equity, you know, people have what they need, inclusion. Do people feel included? How many potlucks have we had where people are bringing <laughs> dishes from, you know what I'm saying, their, their home countries and all of that, you know what I'm saying? So it's cool, liberation. that's an aspect yeah, of it. Yeah, but if yeah. we are really talking about the function of yeah. transformation, Then we have to lead with those conversations. And so that title allows me to do that uh, without people, uh, you know, creating, readily creating counter arguments um that live within the context of well this isn't what his job title says and he we shouldn't be addressing <laughs> white supremacy yeah. you know within our space so so wow. yeah for me it was a st- strategic move and it was uh you know initially some pushback right oh sure oh black man liberation what yeah, does this mean? you know what i'm saying what, what will the de- what will uh, the president think about this what does this mean to faculty how will the students perceive this I'm like, yo, like, li- come on, we are all academics. Let me send you some links. There is liberation theology right, out there. Right? There's liberation psychology out there, right? <laughs> like, I, I didn't just make up the word. <laughs> uh, you know, so do your homework. But in the meantime, Sweet. if I am accepting this position and will be operating within this capacity, this is the name, uh, you know, that I with which I am leading. And so, Wow. Uh, we went back and forth and and engaged in that critical conversation and then they hopped on it and and then people have been responding to it, right? Like, Oh, uh, cool name. Uh, (laughs) Oh, how did you, you know, how did y'all come up with that? And right. And so, and so again, people are yearning for the language and for the conversation. We just have to be brave enough to engage in it and lead with it.
0: I'm speaking today with Trinidad Jackson. He's a PhD candidate in Uville's School of Public Health and Information Sciences. And as you've been hearing, the new inaugural assistant dean for culture and liberation there. Let's talk about racism in public health. I mean... There's so many ways it's sort of obvious to many of us how the structural racism in our country causes poor public health outcomes. I mean, you could definitely expand on that, but I imagine my audience is fairly aware of that. I'm wondering if the field of public health itself has this structural racism built into it, too, and has been part of the problem. Or is that wrong and and the field is actually going in the other direction and tackling this?
1: Nah, you're definitely right. (laughs) You know, so when we look at just education in general, right, in the United States, it's uh, an asset that was afforded to white people and it was not afforded to black people. And so as we look at how education is framed and as we look at how problems are solved from an educational perspective, that has historically and still contemporarily been done through white racial framing. Mm. And so when we talk about public health problems, right, that impact us all, when we talk about social justice issues that impact us all, and if we look at that within the context of public health, well, some of those justice issues and issues of equity, they were initially right, framed by people who weren't necessarily as structurally marginalized as some of our historical populations such as native yeah. native indigenous people, black people, black women etc right and so exemplary of that is the whole feminist movement right yeah right and yeah. so how we saw uh, white women emerge centering their experiences of oppression but black women were left out right and so if you akin that to public health it's sort of the same concept mm-hmm. you know so mm-hmm. we're addressing, Issues of of justice, of equity, of human rights, but we're using human rights all the while. We have laws in place discriminating against (laughs) black people, right? So, make it make sense. Yeah. But uh, but yeah, and so uh, again, that's I've sort of been the dark horse, definitely within the school of public health for a long time. And then, as I mentioned, the research that we've been facilitating at the School of Public Health, particularly um, through an initiative called Youth Violence Prevention Mm. uh, Centers, Uh, that's something that's an initiative that was sort of born out of the 1999 Columbine High School shooting. Wow. And so the CDC said, hey, you know what I'm saying? We got all of this public outcry, political will and this window of opportunity to address quote-unquote, youth violence because of the mass shooting that occurred at the Kalamana High School. So, you know, let's create an initiative where academic and community partnerships are established and, you know, we fund them in five-year cohorts of four to six cities and academic partnerships at a time. And, you know, they hop in there and they address youth violence in their cities. I mentioned... Me coming back from Ferguson, facilitating that community-based research grounded in a lot of qualitative data collection and engagement. And so we use that to say, yo, (laughs) we can readily identify all of the key indicators that are used year after year and that have historically been used to shape policy around violence prevention, around community violence. You know, so looking at indicators such as school suspensions and expulsions, right? Mm-hmm. So who are those kids? What are their racial and ethnic backgrounds? What neighborhoods do they live in? What are their free and reduced lunch rates, right? Uh, race, right? Yeah. So that creates a certain picture, especially in urban areas of black kids. Who's ending up in the ER shot or stabbed? You know, what zip code was the racial and ethnic background, Right. Again, paints a picture of a certain, you know, racial, ethnic demography. Who's getting arrested? Right. So the list goes on. Right. And these are key indicators that are typically used, you know, for violence and to inform, you know, aspects of what violence prevention needs to look like. Right. So is violence prevention uh, law and order? Right. And so do we need to fund more police departments so that they can have an impact on what we're seeing related to these violence indicators? What is it? And so from our perspective, again, you know, coming from the uprising, identifying structural and cultural violence as the drivers of this interpersonal or direct violence that we see being bred within our communities. It's like, no, yeah, <laughs> we got to we, we got to reframe this. And so literally, you know, the first couple of words of our grant narrative were names of Mike Brown. Eric Gardner, et cetera. So like two or three more names just to give you a sense of, you know, of how we framed, you know, our narrative around uh, how we wanted to approach and address violence prevention. And so CDC and then other, well, the CDC primarily, you know, we would sometimes be engaging in conversation, right? Yeah. About structural violence, about racism, et cetera. And it's like, Oh, you know, what are we doing? (laughs) what are we doing? Where are we going? Um, You know, how does this, we need to see logic model, like, you know, show where this indicator, you know, is related to this outcome of racism, etc. So we have literally spent the last five, six years creating that science to be able to show, you know, from an academic perspective, what the connections are. And so now that language, again, that language has been created, uh, you know, and there's been a collective learning process, um, you know, there's better critical consciousness around uh, how these things are connected. Okay. I mentioned being a dark horse, right? So that's us in our research sphere, you know, being looked at like, what the hell are y'all doing? Same thing as a student matriculating through, again, a predominantly white space, coming in classrooms, talking about issues that impact myself, my community rooted in white supremacy and structural violence it's like mm, all right we hear what you're talking about but that really not has nothing to do with health belief model mm. or social cognitive you know what i'm saying mm. like let's get back to the book write this 50 page paper <laughs> over you know some dead white dude whose theory has no applicability to you know some of the immediate needs of my community right yeah. And so yeah um you know comments such as oh the angry black dude or he's withdrawn uh-huh. or you know what i'm saying narratives like that were projected onto me but now right fast forward assistant dean of course hey you lead <laughs> that work for us you know so uh you know so those are some of what i call the costs of justice okay. you know we engage and we have to consistently fight for the things that we believe in and, and ultimately you know universe will align and and uh, we will see some of the, you know, constructive and, and productive, you know, fruits of our labor when it comes to fighting for justice. So, well, yeah.
0: it, it certainly is encouraging news from from U of L School of Public Health, anyway. But yeah. um, let's talk a little bit about um, some of the connections to the environment, uh, and and it could be right here in Louisville too. Uh, just the the exposure of. Folks to ecological toxicity, urban heat islands, these things are, again, can be mapped out demographically,
1: right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, and I'm, I'm going to intersect that with racism as a public health crisis. Yeah. Um, to build on to what we've discussed thus far. So, uh, racism being declared as a public health crisis is something that is new. Within mm-hmm. the field of public health, mm-hmm. right, and it's, 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 it's novel. It's also uh, containing a wow factor because it's like, damn, like we actually have governments putting on paper that racism is an issue, okay, right? So yeah. we know that we we know it, we live it, <laughs> we see it, we create laws <laughs> to perpetuate it, but to now have governments saying, uh, hey, this is an issue that we have to address uh, that is providing a window that says, all right, well, we're going to knock on that window of accountability. Right. Now right. that you said it, you put it in black and white. Cause there's some money so,
0: behind that window too. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: And so, uh, again, this, you know, this hotly emerged in 2020. So in yeah. 2019 is when the first declarations began emerging and you can count on two hands or less, uh, how many, cities states counties had declared racism as a public health crisis uh in may 2020 after everything broke out with george and brianna uh like hot cakes every which way you looked you know this city this state uh this public health association you know across the country uh these declarations were being made right and so that's great again because i mentioned The accountability that we need, the acknowledgement, the awareness and the accountability that we need behind it. And so Louisville was one of those cities uh, that made that move. And so in June of 2020, I presented to Metro Council urging them actually to say, hey, you know, this is happening across the country. We need to do this, uh, especially with, you know, our our current landscape, you know, not in addition to Breonna Taylor, everything that our city city is dealt with from LMPD, from Rubber Town, uh, from you know JCPS, the list can go on, um, but with the amount of inequities that are rooted in white supremacy, we must make this declaration and, and it must have some teeth to it. And so uh, our current mayor, uh, Greg Fisher, in December uh, of 2020 made the declaration. And so I think This is critical as you ask about, you know, um, questions related to the environment because uh, when we make public health declarations, especially as they relate to racism, that is pervasive, right? That's pervasive across all levels of ecology. That's pervasive across every domain that we navigate, uh, you know, as humans, uh, right? So whether it's education, religious and and faith-based systems, Uh, food systems, environmental systems, the list goes on, right? We need, we must examine all elements of that content. And so within the declaration that Louisville Metro created under his leadership, right, I'm going to, I'm going to give an example of, of some language to illustrate our discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one goal is to invest and affordable housing throughout all areas of Louisville Metro and restore divested neighborhoods. Through eviction prevention, home ownership programs, and anti-displacement initiatives to support current homeowners, et cetera. Action steps, uh, the first action step there is to invest $21.2 million to combat combat evictions and homelessness. I have other action steps, but that's a big action step, right? Yeah, Yeah. $21.2 million to combat evictions and homelessness. so we have another goal, address the health impacts of racism and the significant inequities that have once again been highlighted by the COVID-19 pandemic. Metro will examine the need for increased trauma-resilient care through understanding, anticipating and responding to the impact that racial trauma can have and will stress the importance of equitable access to mental health treatments response to these historical traumas wow action steps so i must highlight there is no dollar amount Uh-oh. <laughs> that has been allocated to address this specific goal of addressing the health impacts of racism additionally when it comes to an action step regarding environmental racism environmental justice specifically that narrative reads as follows increase advocacy and education around environmental health in heavily industrialized areas, including areas where there are high high rates of commercial and or high density traffic. And Hmm. so what that says is there is no critical understanding of the mayor or his people for what's needed to immediately intervene in the environmental toxicity that exists in this city And furthermore, it's not a priority, right? So, again, there was no funding allocation directed towards anything related to environmental justice. And when we talk about increasing advocacy and education, for whom? Yeah. Right? (laughs) Who are we educating? For the mayor's office? You know? Uh, And so (laughs) that type of ineptitude, when it exists at the leadership level, yet people are being assaulted daily, daily. Right? i work in the they west end to be so i drive about there it. every day <laughs> uh, every day i'm smelling these yeah. toxins people live there right I, I i just work there but people are literally breathing these things in you know to whatever to some extent 24 hours a day yet you know we don't we don't have it when we talk about racism and declaring it as a public health crisis this is the level of intervention or action steps that is being facilitated at our le- leadership level. And it's yeah. not just Louisville. Uh, yep, yep. Across the country, you know, you have people who don't know what the hell to do about, you know, some of the environmental injustice. And so that's why spaces like your radio show um, are so important to, to lift up and scale up those narratives related to action. So I'm going to hop into the program called Healthy Hoops. Oh, yeah. I want to hear about that. Yeah. And so... Essentially, it was a program, you know, a community-based program, and it provides health screenings and education to young people about asthma, right? So they make it fun. They bring in celebrities and former pro basketball players to engage them in physical activity as well. But, it, you know, in addition to the fun stuff, it provides, again, education about how to manage asthma. And it does, you know, they facilitate this with uh, the young people and, you know, their primary caregivers.
0: Is this a Louisville a, program or national?
1: Yeah, national. Oh, so okay. it existed in Louisville and it exists in other cities as well. Cool, cool. Yep. And so some of the, you know, outcomes that have been identified of these interventions been related to controller medication, right? So that medication usage increase, which, you know, results in rescue medication, the need for that being decreased. ER visits and hospitalizations decrease. Yeah, Sleep disturbances decrease, yeah. right? Forced expiratory volume. So the extent to which I can blow out a lot of air, Yeah, right? Uh, those things increase, right? So my lungs come a little stronger, less visits to the hospital, get more quality sleep. Those things are crucial, right? Those are essential for individuals who are dealing with asthma. And so as we talk about once more, how we're framing public health, how we're creating interventions and how we are linking them to other aspects of our ecology. One of the so that's that's a great program. Right. And that's a great intervention at that level. What needs to be coupled with that is sociopolitical development around, by the way, families, kids who are here today, you all for the majority of you live in the West End. How many of you are familiar with Rubber Town? (laughs) How many are you familiar with the level of toxicity that is produced by industry that exists in your community? And also, how many of you are familiar with the fact that these toxins are linked to asthma? Yeah. Right? And so so then with that level of awareness, what does that mean then for my ability to advocate or to fight against that level of oppression that exists in my community? Right. Like those are the additional types of elements that need to accompany public health intervention, because public health likes to say, hey, you know, what I'm saying we're rooted in population health and social justice. So if that's really the case, then any intervention that we are facilitating, especially at the community level, we need to identify what population, what identity groups need to be centered and what about their identity groups are are associated with oppression and how are we facilitating as an agent of this intervention how are we helping foster that socio-political development to act from a policy legislative perspective right so that level of socio-ecology so you know as i reflect because i was a volunteer for that program for a number of years as a public health student you know and so now that i have an additional critical lens it's like you know damn well this was great right we Facilitated better health yeah. outcomes, better asthma management, but as it relates to young people and families being able to understand how, you know, asthma, asthma management is connected in part due to oppression and white supremacy and capitalism that exists within their their neighborhoods. Right. How do we equip them and, and how do we stand in solidarity with them, right, to fight against that? Additionally, as we talk about the toxicity that exists, and it's always critical that we consider intersectionality, you know, oh, if we yeah. go back to, again, going back to the conversations relating to uprisings. Yeah. We know many of us are familiar with Freddie Gray and Baltimore, and so the Baltimore uprising surrounding his murder you know, there were toxicology reports that were facilitated on him. He was actually being engaged as a case study uh, as it relates to lead poisoning from childhood. Mm. And so the amount of lead that existed in his blood, you know, high levels... And lead poisoning, you know, amongst other types of of toxins that, that, you know, come from pollution. Lead poisoning, when we talk about how that poisoning manifests behaviorally, it's similar to that of, you're familiar with mental health diagnoses. So ADHD, Mm. oppositional defiant disorder, right? So the labels that we place on on young kids when they go into uh, to receive mental health care. And we might
0: blame the kids for, but...
1: It's actually the environment, right? That's where you see where we're going, (laughs) right? Impulsive, mentally disabled. Um, There was actually an attorney in Baltimore. His name was Saul Kerpelman. He defended more than 4,000 victims of lead poisoning within that area, nearly all of them black, right? And they Mm -hmm. had... Limited capacity, so they could barely read, according to him, and they had other deficiencies as well. Um, but they fall through the cracks, right? They, sure. Those types of disabilities aren't acknowledged, and we don't extend grace, right, to that social outcome yeah. of that impact. Yeah. Uh, and you know, when we talk about, for example, I mentioned that I'm from St. Louis, the pruitt Igo projects, 1954 mm. to 1972, they existed. Uh, the US military secretly sprayed zinc cadmium sulfide through inner cities. St. Louis was one of those cities, again, wow. in the Pruitt IGO projects, but it was cities across the country and some in Canada as well that they were testing these chemical agents to identify hey, would it, if we wanted to use these <laughs> as, uh, as chemical warfare, right, what types of impacts would they have? And so, wow. These are the types of assaults, the types of longstanding oppression that have been facilitated across and within our communities. And we're just left to dealt with those blows without any reparation, without any, you know, public health intervention that is sufficient for our communities to be productive, to be constructive, et cetera. And so it's unfortunate, but if we're not talking about these historical issues and the contemporary impacts and some of the issues aren't just historical no right? They're I, ongoing. I was
0: gonna say like you wanted to talk and we're, we just got a couple minutes left but you wanted to talk about the land development code right here in louisville today and and how it it amplifies things like the urban heat island effect this is not just i mean it's tied to historical racism but it's very contemporary and it's impacting people today right
1: yeah so the land development code that's actually you know a tool. Um, Here, what I've recently learned is that it's rewritten, you know, every so many decades, right? And so they made a concerted effort to do things a little differently this time around. And so the extent to which people are satisfied with the effort, right, that's arguable. But it was done differently this time where they, you know... Attempted to engage community, albeit it was during COVID, etc. But <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, right to inform people on, hey, you know, this is what happens with the land development code. Essentially, um, you have the ability to zone certain things, Right. whether it's buildings, businesses, residential properties, etc. And so, I was a, a big advocate of of our community identifying this as a tool to combat environmental mm, racism. Mm, right. So, yeah. how do we zone out, right, some of the businesses that exist within Rubbertown? Yeah. How do we ensure that we are no longer allocating space for businesses that, that come in and, and, you know, pollute our air, our land, uh, our water? And additionally, you know, as we engage communities, or as we say we want community engagement right. to drive <laughs> what intervention looks like, Are we really delineating (laughs) who's at the table, right? And so are we intentionally seeking out women? Yeah. Are we intentionally seeking out members of the LGBTQ community? Different faith-based persons, deaf, autistic people, people living with HIV, people who are criminalized, formerly and currently incarcerated oh man yeah detained or institutionalized right for whatever mental you know elements you want to throw out there migrant communities undocumented migrants low and no income or cash poor people working class people homeless people Mm -hmm. right are we specifically and intentionally bringing our people, our neighbors, our brothers and sisters to the table as the most structurally marginalized persons and saying how are we centering your experience as it relates to the land development code or as it relates to urban heat islands? And then additionally, are we overlaying all of those categories that I just mentioned with the word black?
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> Intersectionality. So yeah, so yeah. we can yeah.
1: we can include those populations, but we also have to remember that because of the historical and contemporary legacies that exist in this country, we also have to censor Black at the intersection of all of those those categories. Yeah, yeah. And so when we talk about something such as an urban heat island, right? Like Louisville, the West End of Louisville is the gr- fat, one of the fastest growing heat islands in the nation, right? Not just in the state, in the nation. And so what does that mean when we think about, for example, if it's hotter in the West End, that means I'm gonna spend more resources, more time attempting to cool myself down, right? And so if we, from a statistical perspective, we know that people in the West End are consumed with poverty, right? That means inherently they're paying more to attempt to stay cool. Uh, Yeah. Uh, And so the cycle of then generating Heat, Right. You need you must generate heat in order to produce air conditioning. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, right. And so that cycle continues. So once again, this impacts black people and this impacts poor people. Uh, and we have, you know, some of the biggest generators of heat uh, in in the state located in the West End. Once yep. again, rubber Town, Right. Yep, and yep. so. So, again, man, are we making those connections or what and what are we doing from a policy uh, from a legislative uh, perspective to ensure that we, as we move forward with correcting for and, and, and interjecting, uh, you know, climate change, um, what are we doing to ensure that we're protecting our most structurally marginalized?
0: Excellent question to end on. And, man, I wish I had a whole nother hour with you. Trinidad Jackson, Ph.D. candidate and assistant dean for culture and liberation and faculty instructor in health promotion and behavioral sciences at U L School of Public Health and Information Sciences. Man, it has been such a treat having you in the studio with me.
1: Yes, sir. Can <laughs> I give a shout out? Please. Because I always like one. to, you know, connect people with uh, with agents of action. Yes. And so I definitely want to. Uh, Shout out Kentuckians for the Commonwealth and that people know that uh, you can visit KFTC.org. I've been engaged in and have learned a lot from this organization as it relates to climate issues in the city, across the state, but also have engaged in some some federal uh, issues. action as it relates to what's going on currently actually currently in congress yeah uh and so definitely if you're looking to get involved engage in some action and and activate the agency within you uh, as a person who has power to change things within our community, that's definitely an, uh, an entity with which you can start.
0: Kftc.org. Couldn't have said it better myself. All right. Stay tuned, my friends. Coming up in just a minute, your community action calendar. With lots of other tips for getting engaged in sustainability this week. So stay tuned. <laughs> Friends, is the sweet sounds of Louisville's own Appalachian. Boy, we had a great time listening to them out at World Fest this past weekend, rocking the Belvedere. Many thanks to Appalachian for giving us permission to use their local music on our local programs here on Forward Radio, which you can find archived at forwardradio.org. My name is Justin Nogg and this is the time on Sustainability Now when we get our pencils sharpened and our calendars out and get ready to take action for sustainability this week. starting Tuesday. September 17th at 10 a.m. In fact, you may be able to hear a live version of Sustainability Now on Tuesday, the 7th at 10 a.m. We'll be out at Riverview Park for the We All Drink Downstream Community Gathering, 8202 Greenwood Road. How much have you looked at Louisville from the Rubber Town point of view? Well, on Tuesday, September 7th at 10 a.m., a coalition of local community groups, political leaders, and science and health professionals will host a Community Action and Education Day about the ongoing issues with the Toxic chemical pollution in our Ohio River Valley. We'll learn about PFAS and related forever chemicals in our water supply, about the impacts of petro- petrochemical development on the Ohio River, which provides drinking water for millions, and about how we can advocate for our community health. This event is part of a national week of coalition actions, which will be shared with the Biden administration and the media, calling on the government to halt all permitting for new petrochemical facilities. Now is no time to be locking ourselves into decades of deepening dependence on fossil fuels and petrochemicals, which both damage our climate system and poison our air, water, soil, and bodies. Nearly two decades ago, the people of the Rubber Town neighborhood drafted the Louisville Charter, which continues to guide organizing work in frontline communities around the nation. The people speak time and again, and yet our civilization continues to be built around compounds which poison us. Today Day, we all feel the inflection point a sense that there's no use going this way and something has got to give so let's talk together about how we take advantage of this moment the event includes water testing a bird's eye view and toxic tour map of the area's petrochemical plants speakers including representative Attica Scott live radio fun here on forward radio food from food not bombs and ways to plug in and find your place in the work of pushing back as well as musical guests the mighty shades of ebony for more information go to facebook.com slash x rebel ky extinction rebellion kentucky is one of the coalition partners that's facebook.com slash x rebel ky and we hope to see you out at riverview park on tuesday at 10 a.m or if you can't make it out tune in to forward radio at 106.5 fm and forwardradio.org now, I mentioned it earlier, and the second in the Louisville Grows fall seeds and starts sales is in-person sales are taking place this coming Saturday, September 11th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. out at the Healthy House Greenhouse, 1639 Portland Avenue. You can learn more about what's available and pre-order at seedsandstarts.org. Fall is often an overlooked gardening season, and Louisville Grows is here to help you take full advantage of it early Early September, in fact, is the best time to rejuvenate your garden in order to enjoy fresh vegetables through Christmas. Planting coal crops in late summer allows them ample time to grow before fall's first frost. And in fact, gardeners often have better luck growing fussy vegetables like broccoli and cauliflower in the fall rather than in the spring because you don't have to worry so much about insect pests, weeds or bolting in the heat. And the cooler temperatures also make for sweeter and less bitter greens. Root vegetables are also perfect for fall gardening as they can be left in the ground, mulched with straw leaves and dug up as you need them throughout the winter. Well, what should you grow in the fall? Focus on very frost-tolerant crops like coal crops and lettuces, broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, lettuce carrots, turnips, rutabagas, and mustard greens. And you can also overwinter things like onions and garlic. You can get them all right now for fall planting at the in-person Healthy House at uh, 1639 Portland Avenue, Louisville Grows in-person seeds and starts sale September 11th from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. Go to seedsandstarts.org There's a lot going on this Saturday, September 11th. Uh, That's not the only thing to put on your calendar. There'll be an event from 1 to 5 called Smoketown, a place we call home out at Preston and Finzer Streets. The Community Foundation of Louisville, in partnership with Melanair Marketplace and the Wealth Building Movement, invites residents of Smoketown, past and present to Smoketown, a place we all we call home. Saturday, September 11th from 1 to 5 at Preston and Finzer. It'll feature live entertainment from Cheryl Roos, food booths, the Melanair Marketplace, Vendor Fair, and more. Learn about strategies for affordable home ownership, home maintenance, and tenants' rights and advocacy to combat rent gouging. You won't want to miss it on September 11th from 1 to 5 at Preston and Finzer. Also on Saturday the 11th from 2 to 5 p.m. at Waterfront Botanical Gardens, 1435 Frankfurt Avenue, it's the annual Regeneration Fair. Come out and enjoy this free environmental fair featuring lots of family outdoor fun. Then stick around for the annual Bug Ball. The events are held rain or shine. There will be t-shirt printing with Steam Exchange, Beekeeping featuring Cave Hill Honey, Fossil Fun with Falls of the Ohio, a Bug Costume Parade, a Ladybug release, and much more. Enjoy refreshing treats from Snow What Snowballs, Apocalypse, Brew Works. Full details are at waterfrontgardens.org. It's on Saturday from 2 to 5 out at the Waterfront Botanical Gardens on Frankfort Avenue. Now, also continuing Saturday from 2 to 3.30, you heard about it on an earlier program, it's our tenant organizing training, collectivizing our struggles in collaboration with tenant-led organizations across the state. Kentucky Tenants, which is a project of Root Cause Research Center, launched this tenant organizing training series with trainings hosted in various locations around Kentucky or via Zoom on Saturdays from 2 to 3.30 p.m. And this coming Saturday, September 11th, they will be here in town at the Joshua Tabernacle Baptist Church, 426 South 15th Street, And the theme is Base Building 101, but the series continues through December 18th when they will be returning to Louisville uh, speaking about tenant organizing in Kentucky. Where do we go from here? You can sign up anytime between now and that final December 18th training. Learn more and register to participate at rootcauseresearch.org slash tenants training. Now, coming up on Sunday the 12th, there's a couple great events. Uh, Brightside is hosting a a sweep and sip cleanup from 1130 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 1020 in Butchertown at 1020 East Washington Street. Brightside's sweep and sip event series was launched in August to get more people and local businesses involved in Brightside's community cleanup initiative. After the local cleanup, local breweries offer participants a free beer or pint glass. More info is at Facebook.com. Slash Brightside Louisville. It's coming up this Sunday the 12th from 1130 to 1 at 1020 in Butchertown. Also on Sunday the 12th, it's the Big Table, Louisville's largest potluck out at Iroquois Park on Rundle Road behind the amphitheater. It's from 5 to 7 p.m. Enough good food and enough good people can indeed change the world, and magical things happen when we share a meal. So come on out, bring your family's favorite dish, share your culinary delights with me new friends. Once seated with other guests, table hosts will help your party share stories and answer fun prompts to get to know each other better. You never know. You may find that your neighbor has more in common with you than you thought. Bring a dish and experience the magic that happens when we connect with our neighbors. You can bring instruments too. To, there'll be a jam session afterwards, uh, or you can volunteer to be a host uh, at one of the tables which means you'll welcome participants and guide them the conversation and uh, due to the ongoing pandemic you should not attend if you're sick you should if you're not fully vaccinated please wear a mask Uh, and if you are vaccinated wearing a mask is still encouraged you can learn more and register on eventbrite.com just search for the big table and come on out this Sunday the 12th from 5 to 7 p.m. at Iroquois Park behind the amphitheater. Also on Sunday the 12th from 5 to 6.30, the Kentucky Beekeepers Association is having their September field day at Mike Hoffelich's Apiary at 11500 Bardstown Road. We'll meet a, a KBA member, Swarm Team member, and Cutout King Mike Hoffelich's Apiary to talk about winter preparation, quilt boxing, Uh, venting, winter feed and combining hives. Please bring a bee suit and if you don't own one, the KBA has a few extras. You can learn more at kyanabees.com k-y-a-n-a And finally, on Monday, September 13th, the Coalition of West Louisville Neighborhood Associations is having a neighborhood forum at California Park from 6.30 to 8 p.m. on Monday the 13th, 1600 West St. Catherine Street. The top Topic is West End Opportunity Partnership TIF and Kentucky Legislators Representation bring your own uh, lawn chair and mask and uh, come on out to learn more about TIFs and the West End TIF Uh, and share your concerns and ideas. It's hosted by the president of Metro Council, David James, District 6. And again, it is at California Park, 1600 West St. Catherine Street on Monday at 6.30 p.m. And that's all the time we have for today here on Sustainability Now. Thanks so much for tuning in. I look forward to being back in your ears again in one week's time, my friends. Be well.